0: to Psalm 73. Now, you, nothing's going wrong with your Bible. Um, I'm going to be reading from the King James Version. I was telling my brother, you know, I don't even know if I have a New American Standard. I have a hardback New American Standard that is packed, and you know how that is when you move. Um, it's in storage, so I couldn't even get access to that if I wanted to. You have them here, of course, but I asked my brother if he thought that that would be a problem. He said, no, 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 just go ahead and do that. So I'll be reading from the King James Version, and you'll have your other Bible there, and it's sometimes kind of interesting to observe some of the differences, but I'd like to read Psalm 73. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look right into God's Word together this morning. Asaph is said to be the writer of this psalm, and it says, "'Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my heart were, feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped.' For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Wherefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say this, I will speak thus. Behold, I shall offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee, thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is my strength and my heart, uh, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a- whoring from thee, but it is good for me to, have, to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. Now, let's pray together, and we'll ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you today for the privilege that we have to meet together in worship. We thank you that this is your day. You have told us to set apart this day. And so, Father, we come in complete confidence to pray for your blessing on all that's done here, seeing as how everything that's a part of our worship today you have commanded us to do in your holy word. And as we think of this particular segment of the service, we remember Paul's words to Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And Father, we seek to do that by the mercy, grace, and power of God through the Holy Spirit working in hearts and lives. We we know, Lord, that we cannot speak and we cannot hear apart from the presence and power and working of the Spirit. So, we cast ourselves upon you. We pray that you would deliver us from distractions and those things about which we can really do nothing now. But help us to realize it is your time of appointment to listen to your word. And oh God, please help me to be able to say something that will be of practical benefit and will honor and glorify Jesus Christ. You know every heart. You know our downsitting, You know our uprising. You understand our thoughts afar of off. And so, oh dear God, Thou who searchest the hearts, meet with us today. Give us thy blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, Psalm 73, of course, I believe to be a very well-known psalm. Psalm 73 is interesting because if you know something about the psalms, you know that they are divided into five books. I think a lot of people make a big mistake when they come to the psalms. They just sort of think, well, you know, we have this random collection. We have this uh, grouping of 150 psalms. Who knows how they got together And that's a big mistake, really, because there is a definite organization to the psalms. And, of course, the most obvious way to sense that is when you have come along in your Bible and it talks about book one, book two, and all of that. That's kind of the most obvious thing that you can see. This particular psalm, and I don't have time to get into a lot of that this morning, but this particular psalm is the first psalm in book three of the psalms. And if you're a student of the Psalms, you've heard this terminology before. We, we talk about different kinds of Psalms. Um, some of these distinctions are are not you, you can't observe them too strictly, and then others uh, you can really you can really see why a Psalm, for instance, is called a pen, penitential Psalm. You can really see why another Psalm is called an, imprec- an imprecatory Psalm. These types of things. Well, you have royal Psalms, and they, of course, have to do with the king, and how that is kind of a, a foreshadowing, an institution of, in, in Israel that really foreshadowed the coming of Messiah. And so you have royal psalms, and then you have what are called wisdom psalms. That's what Psalm 71 is. Very interesting that book one, book three begin with wisdom psalms. I didn't check on the others, but uh, you you know Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 is obviously a, a choice made by the Holy Spirit to begin the Psalter, because what a wisdom psalm does is, is it teaches us about godly living, oftentimes comparing how the righteous should live as opposed to the ungodly. So what does it say in Psalm 1 toward the end? The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And so when you come to Psalm 73, you have us another wisdom psalm. It's attempting to teach us about godly living. And oftentimes there is that comparison between how a godly person lives and how an ungodly person lives. And many times we learn well from negative example, don't we? So you have this contrast set up there. And so in Psalm 73, we have that. And Psalm 73, I think, is well beloved because it deals with a problem that at one time or another is a stumbling block to almost all believers. And that is what we might call the prosperity of the wicked. That's actually what I've titled the message today. The prosperity of the wicked. Do you know that that was a great stumbling block to Jeremiah? I want you to take a moment and just keep your place here. You have plenty of things to do that with. You have bulletins, pens. But I'd like for you to look at a few of these places. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 12. I'd like you just to see this because there's, uh, all through the Old Testament, there are different places that really deal with this problem and different examples of people who struggled with it. I think it's good for us to identify with that. So, for example, Jeremiah, we're acquainted with him. Verse number one of chapter 12, look what Jeremiah says. This is, again, uh, Jeremiah, if you know anything about Jeremiah, there are different times when Jeremiah complains. And I often think to myself, you know, God tolerates that as long as our spirit is right. Now, you get a little bit too big for your britches. The the Lord does not tolerate that. But I used to say in our business meetings to people, you know, you can come in and you can say anything you need to say as long as you say it in the right spirit. The moment you're not saying it in the right spirit, no. Well, that's kind of here. You know, you can speak freely with God. And God understands our frame. He knows our weaknesses. And and you hear that coming out with Jeremiah. You can really hear Jeremiah struggling. And he says this, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Now, Jeremiah is going to talk to God about God's judgments. that kind of make you smile this morning a little bit? But we do that, right? I mean, Jeremiah is us in this sense. He says, Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? So this seeming incongruity that Jeremiah, on the one hand, is experiencing all of these difficulties, these problems, these trials. On the other hand, it seems like there are people out there who don't know the Lord, who don't have an interest in godliness, whatever, who never read their Bible, and they seem to skate right along as if they had no problems in life. Let's go back to the book of Job, just a little back before. The book of Psalms. Let's look at one other. We're not going to do too much with this, but I think it's good to see this. And there will be a commonality between the two examples that I've chosen that I'll point to in just a moment, but Job 21. Now, Job is not completely taken in by all of this, but nevertheless, Job observes it. And I want you, this is quite a a section in which Job points out this problem. And I'm sure it was something that Job wrestled with as well. But in Job 21, let's begin reading in verse 7. He says, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Their seed is established in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull gendereth and faileth not. Their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance." They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Therefore they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him and what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Now, as I said, there's a commonality because think about this for a moment. Who tends and when do we tend to struggle with this problem when things aren't going well? See, folks, when the days are balmy and the seas are fair and the wind's following, well, everybody can say God is good. It's easy to say God is good when you're not facing difficulties and problems. But think about Job. I don't even want to think about Job. I, it just, I really don't know how to even figure the kinds of things that Job went through. I think about Jeremiah and you know we're beginning to see the early stages of persecution in this country uh, if you have eyes to see you can see it and it's very very worrisome but we don't have to deal with anything yet like what jeremiah had to deal with so so more often than not this is when this we are beset with this when Not when everything is going well, but when things don't go well. We lose our job. There's other difficulties or problems at home, in our family. Divorces occur, these types of things. And all of a sudden, God doesn't seem so good anymore. And it seems like God has failed us. And where is God? And yet we see all these other people, and they just seem to be cruising along as if there were no problems at all. This is the problem with which uh, we are dealing, and the psalmist was struggling. We get our eyes off of God. We get them onto our troubles. Then we look from there to unbelievers. Beloved, I always find it interesting to point out you know, when you start looking around, you usually get into trouble. You have to keep looking up. That's about the only way you stay out of trouble. But if you start looking around, the first thing you know, the devil feeds in all kinds of information that begins to make you want to doubt or begins to make you question. And what is it that we're questioning? Well, we're questioning that God is good. Notice verse number one, truly God is good to Israel. More on that in just a few moments. But we start to look around. We start to look around to unbelievers. We start to become envious of what is really an illusion, the fact that they seem to be cruising along without any of these difficulties that we seem to be encountering. And the first thing you know, it leads to despondency. We become discouraged. It leads to self-pity, which is a bad place to get to in life. Then it leads to complaining. And the first thing you know, it leads to failure and disobedience as we get astray from how God would have us live. Well, the psalmist had this problem. This is is a well-beloved psalm because it's Asaph giving his own personal testimony of when he struggled with this in his life. But to me, the great blessing about this psalm is that we don't just hear a testimony of somebody struggling. We can all give those, right? But we hear the testimony of someone who struggled and then came out on the other side. And he not only came out on the other side, but he tells us how he was able to do that. And so this is indeed a wisdom psalm. We have much to learn from this. And I I am only praying that I can scratch the surface of it this morning and, and try to show you some things that God may have given for me to share. I want to handle this this morning in uh, three parts, all right? So I'll have three key words that I use to sort of develop it as we move down through so that we can see the progression of thought as we move from him complaining and describing the problem right on down through his what, what, he, what he describes as the cure, what it is that helped him to see where he had gone wrong. And then finally, he describes his contrition as he realizes just how foolish he had really been. I think this will be a a blessing to you. So in the first 15 verses, we have a rather lengthy, it's almost half the psalm. It's a little better than half the psalm. Have a lengthy portion of the complaint. See, it all started just as it did in Eden. I want to stop a minute. Let that sink in. This is nothing new. He's questioning something that he was taught from childhood, just like you and I have been taught from childhood. Did you learn that grace where we say God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food? If we didn't learn that, we certainly learned the 100th Psalm. It ends with this great statement, for the Lord is what? Good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. From the very beginning, as we read the Bible, as we start off, everything that God is and everything that God does is declared to be good. And then you know the story. You come to Genesis chapter 3, and somehow the evil one manages to get Eve off to the side, and he has a question. God really say you can't eat of all the trees of the garden? Oh, no. no, oh, no, no, no. No, you got it all wrong. No, we may freely eat of all the trees of the garden. Only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The devil's bold. He just looked right at her and said, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What's the whole insinuation of that? God's not so good as you think. He's withheld the one thing from you that really is the thing to be desired. Because that keeps you sort of from being like he is. So he's got you over here and he's given you all these things. And the first thing you know, we get our eyes off of every good and perfect gift which God has given us. And the scripture is clear. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James tells us this. And we get our eyes off of everything that God has done for us and given to us that is so good. And we start looking at that one thing and we begin to question, well, maybe God isn't good after all. Maybe this is just some sort of a hoax. It's as old as that. That technique that Satan uses is as old as the Garden of Eden. We begin to question what I would go so far as to call a sacred tenet of orthodoxy, because it has to do with the character of God. That is, God is good. And from it, we then begin to slip. Look at the description the psalmist gives in verse number two. He says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Is there anything more helpless feeling than slipping? Of course, down here, you don't have to worry about it quite so much, but (laughs) you get a little further north, and you have to worry about ice a good bit more frequently. Truthfully, I'd much rather have a snowy winter than an icy winter. And last winter, we had a lot of ice. And I got wise to some things after a while, but you know there's something that you have to really be careful about, and it's called black ice. You know what that is? You can't see it. And I would go out. I went out one morning to uh, deal with the driveway. I had a a fairly extensive driveway there and just walked out normally. I had no reason to suspect or think that there was anything amiss. And boom, just like that in a moment of time, you've just lost complete and total control. You're falling. There's nothing you can do about it. There's black ice. You didn't see it. It's deadly. Things can quickly get out of control, beloved, in our lives. This is the point I'm trying to make. You start questioning God. You start doubting God. You start turning your back on tenets of biblical truth that we've known from the beginning, and you're going to be in trouble very quickly. And Satan knows this. And so from there, it's all downhill, really. It was like slipping on ice. And he became envious, he tells us this, of the wicked, Boy, if you need to see this problem outlined, look at verse 3. For I was envious at the, foolish, uh, at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Look at verse 7. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish. And then you look at verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Now, there, there shouldn't be any doubt as to what he's talking about in this psalm, but it really is talking about this problem of the prosperity of the wicked. We begin to become envious because we look around. It's illusory, but it's easy to believe. What are some of the descriptions he gives of this? Well, first of all, he talks about pain. He says in verse 4, For there are no bands in their death. You probably have pain or pangs. That's what the word means, pain or pangs. And then he says something else in the next verse. He says, they are not in trouble. Now, how would you like to have a pain-free, trouble-free life? Would you? So you look around at other people, and when that's the perception you get, particularly in comparison to your own experience. Of course, as I say, it's illusory. This is ridiculous. But it's just how cunning and how powerful and how deceitful Satan can be, especially when it's augmented by our own fallen nature. Get your eyes off God and begin to question him. And the first thing you know, it'll be like slipping. This is what he's talking about. Now, he goes on to say, here are some other characteristics of these people, things we know are wrong. He says in verse 6, pride compassed them about. Well, there's arrogance. He talks about violence. They're abusive, and we see a great deal of that in today's society. He talks about the fact in verse 8 that they're corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue. Look at what you have here. You have arrogance leading to blasphemy. This is the worst of fallen nature, see, because... Do you ever wonder why you don't have more? Maybe God knows best. How we spend all this time wishing we had more? When perhaps God knows that if you had more, it would be a stumbling block to you. There's a commentary on this in the Proverbs where he talks about don't give me too much. I'm, I'm paraphrasing heavily. Don't give me too much, don't give me too little. Give me too much, I'd get full and deny you. Give me too little and I might do something that dishonors you. And I oftentimes think about this and think that, you know, I'm just as happy and content, especially when I'm walking with the Lord. I let him make those decisions. He knows how much I need. But when you look at this type of thing, it's easy to become envious of people who seem to have this, but you look at what it does to them, all this prosperity. I want to be careful. I don't want to say too much, but I, I look at some of these people that, I I tend to follow the news, except I've gotten so disenchanted with it lately that it's, and I I don't know about you, but to me, it's it's important. It's part of my civic duty to know what's going on. But at the same point, if I'm going to listen to the news, I do it on my terms. I'm not about to sit down for some half hour in the evening and let somebody tell me what they think is the news. I'll try to be as discerning as I can. I'll visit the websites that I think are reasonably helpful, even though I realize they all have their point of view, but I turn this stuff on and, and, you know, what am I confronted with? I'm confronted with the celebrities. Well, I don't give a hoot about the celebrities, and I don't really think they know more than I do, so I'm not supposed to, I don't quite understand why, because this celebrity said this, that's supposed to mean anything to me. Or, I'll give you a name. I listen to Bill Gates who says this about COVID testing and all this. I think to myself, who made him an expert and why should I listen to him? And it goes on and on and on, right? The, The powerful people of our society have oftentimes, they are independent from God. They don't need God. When you have a big bank account, you don't have to walk humbly with your God. Or at least that is certainly the temptation not to walk humbly with your God. And the first thing you know, you become arrogant, you become oppressive and disdainful of other people who are made in the image of God, and you become blasphemous. And if I haven't just described what's going on in American society today, I don't know what does. And this is what he's grappling with, this prosperity of the wicked and beyond the prosperity, what it does to them, and... He sees that this is something that ought to bring down God's judgment, but it just seems like they skate right along as if God didn't notice. Folks, what we've just described here is is classic. God seems to look the other way, and that's exactly what they say. Verse 11 How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? He knows. He certainly knows. I remember, though, when we were kids, I don't know if my brothers ever told you this, and I can remember I I would say it with my friends, and I think I might have said it to my brother a time or two if he did something I didn't think was right and eventually got caught, or something of that nature. We always say this little saying, justice always prevails. (laughs) But folks, look around you and ask yourself, does justice always prevail? I don't know where we got that saying, but I was quickly disabused of the truth of that. Justice doesn't always prevail in this world. So what we've described here is really a classic. This is a classic. You can say other things. Job mentions a few other things. Jeremiah, he's quite terse. But this is really a classic description of this problem and how it can be a real stumbling block to ourselves and to other people. Look at verse 13. To ourselves. He says this. Here's the effect it had on him. It was withering spiritually. He says, verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. Now, you know that's not true, but this is how he came to feel, and it goes on, and washed my hands in innocency, or to other people. What happens if other people who regard our walk with the Lord and who think our Christianity is is firm realize that we're going through this, or we make comments like this when we complain he says, if I say, verse 15, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. You become a stumbling block to yourself and a stumbling block to other people when this problem overtakes us and we succumb to it. So all of this is classic, really, and I think we've said enough about the complaint. Let's talk about the, what I'll call the cure, which we see in verses 16 through 20. See, he talks about slipping in verse number two, but there is something that causes Asaph to regain traction. Now, have you ever had this experience before? You're driving along in your car and you hit ice or something else that makes you lose control of the vehicle. That can happen around here. I can remember a day headed back to Greenville from Greer. And obviously, it had to be the cooler season of the year. I can remember I was driving a 1976 Ford Granada. Can anybody even remember them? A little boxy square thing. Anyway, it was my mother's, and somehow uh, it was offered to me, so it wouldn't have been my choice for a car, but it was offered to me. So I'm driving along in this thing, and I get ready to go up over an overpass or a bridge, whatever you would want to call it. First thing you know, I've totally lost control of the car. And it turned 180 degrees around in the road. I was safe. No harm came to me. But boy, you talk about losing one of your nine lives. <laughs> I mean, my heart was in my throat. I would never seen such a thing as that before. And he, but if so, the thing of it is, if you can somehow regain traction. They always tell you steer into it. And I think to myself, that doesn't, that seems like that goes against common sense but somehow you've got to try to regain traction. Well, what is it he tells us that causes him to be able to regain his footing, to regain traction when he seems to be slipping and has lost control? Look what he says, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Folks, I don't want to take undue liberty with the text. I simply want to give you our application of this. Asaph said, I got distracted by looking around. I got my eyes off of central biblical truths that have governed my life all along. That's how I fell into this pit. But when I went to the sanctuary, and this reminds me really of our holy habits. I, I oftentimes say to people, do you know church attendance is the easiest habit in the world to get out of? And the hardest habit in the world to regain. I really worry about a lot of our churches with this COVID. It just seems like we've become accommodated to, and my daughter called it couch church. There is something awfully convenient, and you folks at home don't don't misunderstand the intent of this. I'm glad we have this. The church, I commend you for having this outreach to people who just aren't ready yet or who who are in a, a, a vulnerable group. We need that. But there's something about giving up your holy habits. There's something about getting negligent about your holy habits. Church attendance, Bible reading, your walk with the Lord. And somehow that appears to have happened in the case of Asaph because he said, you know, I got my bearings back. I got my equilibrium restored when I got back to church. I'm just going to put it in language that we would use. I got back to church where I hear the word of God, where instead of looking around at all these things that are seeming incongruities that conflict with what I know to be true, I'm in a place where the Holy Spirit can deal with me. The word of God can be preached and applied to my heart, and it got a hold of me. I'm really glad for that because I need that, don't you? Yes. We all need that. That's what he's talking about. So he says, we, we often have this problem when Satan and circumstances conspire to get our eyes off of God and we realize we've been had. We haven't been had by God, we've been had by the devil. Look at verse 22, what he has to say about this. So foolish was I and ignorant. <clears throat> I was as a beast before thee. What is it that he was particularly confronted with? Well, he'd been looking at the prosperity of the wicked. He'd been envying with the wicked. All of a sudden, he gets into, back into God's house. He gets exposed to God's truth, and he, he becomes reacquainted with. I can't tell you what sermon he heard or what the scripture reading was or whatever, but he says, then understood I their end. And as the psalmist says in another place, I'd as soon be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For all that they seem to have, that the heart could wish, more than the heart could wish, what they face both in this life, it's it's an illusion. It's absolutely untrue that they have no pains in their death. They face the same difficulties believers face, only without the Lord. Think about that for a moment. It's absolutely not true that they don't have troubles in life. They have the same troubles. In fact, I'm convinced that many of them have more. Because the more things you have to mind and be worried about, the more troubles they seem to bring you. And he realizes this, and he feels terrible about this. It's not really as it seems with the wicked, you know, either in this life or the life to come. He says, Then understood I their end. They're not so all happy and thrilled as they come across as in this life. They have the same problems everyone else has, as I say, only without the Lord. You know, Peter has an interesting phrase. Your your Bible talks about destruction and desolation. That's their end. And Peter has an interesting phrase for this. We read from 1 Peter a while ago in the New Testament lesson, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, their damnation slumbereth not. It may seem to. They're thinking God's asleep. He doesn't see anything. He doesn't know. But Peter says, their damnation slumbereth not. That's 2 Peter 2.3. I generally prefer a conservative translation of the Bible, but once in a while, some of these paraphrases have memorable phrases in them. And the New English Bible captures the gist of this in quite an interesting phrase, whereas the authorized version says their damnation slumbereth not. The New English Bible reads, perdition waits for them with unsleeping eyes. That's quite catchy. That's quite memorable. They do not see what is clear as crystal to God because God sees the end from the beginning and he is the author of both. God just looks down. God just sees the whole thing. It's all just a dimension to him. You and I are linear. We're going along here and it's today and then tomorrow it will be tomorrow and the next day it'll be the next day and you can't see past any of that stuff. God, time is just something God made. God sits above time. God sees everything that's going on. He knows the end from the beginning. This is all just as crystal clear to God as anything could be. And what an illusion it is to somehow think that a day of reckoning is not coming. This is what he's reminded of when he, as I say, gets back to church. You think about the rich fool in the New Testament. He completely lost track or sight of any of that. He just thought he was living here and there was nothing else. Mm, bumper crops. Got to pull down these old barns and put up bigger barns to store all this stuff. And say to yourself, Soul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. What did God say who sees everything? The end from the beginning. Thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then where shall all those things be which thou hast provided? Sort of reminds me of a story I heard of a New York City couple. They received in the mail two tickets to a Broadway hit. No note, no explanation. No person took credit. They just received the tickets. They were expensive tickets. They thought, well, no sense in letting them go to waste, so they went and enjoyed the show. They came home. Their apartment had been ransacked. They went into the bedroom, and there was a little note on the pillow. They saw that Furs, jewelry, and all kinds of things were missing, and the little note on the pillow said, Now you know. A little late, wouldn't you say? Now you know. Hmm. Then understood I their end, he says. And I hope you understand, I'm sure you've had this teaching on many occasions, but when the Bible speaks about destruction as it does in these verses, verse 18, surely thou didst set them in slippery places. They're the ones that are going to slip and nothing arrests their fall. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? Where again, the word is destruction. You know, the King James has a kind of a a penchant for the love of synonyms, and that makes really good reading. Sometimes it, it maybe throws you off a little bit. you don't realize you're dealing with the same word. Destruction is what he's talking about. You know, of course, that when the Bible uses destruction in this sense, it's not talking at all about what's called annihilationism. doesn't mean that you just one day the end comes. I've had so many people say this. So you know, here's what happens. you know you, when you're dead, it's done. No, my friend, it's only just begun. Because destruction in the Bible in these contexts is not talking about the loss of being. It's talking about the loss of well-being. So let's look quickly at the end of this psalm at the contrition because he really feels bad. He realizes that he's just, he's been taken. And he's gotten back on course. He's gotten back on track. This is what's inspiring about this psalm. What is it that helped him to see this? It helped him to get back into church and to regain his holy habits. But when he got there, what were the things he was reminded of? Beyond just the fate of the wicked, he was reminded about that same core tenet of orthodoxy that we've known from the beginning and he's got his eyes off of. You know God is good. What's that look like? How do you know God is good? Well, he tells us he's good, but look at this. This is what Alec Motyer, in his commentary, the daily devotional on the Psalms, I like this phrase. He calls it the heavenly balance sheet. Now, this is not full, okay, but this is five things on the heavenly balance sheet. If you know the Lord, if you are one of his, this is on your balance sheet. Number one, and I'm just going to put this in language like what we talk every day so that we don't have any trouble understanding the point that's here. Verse 23. Verse 23 says this. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. What's that mean? God has never left me. And that brings a great deal of comfort. God has never left me. Isn't this what he promises in his word? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And I am sure that the vast majority, maybe every single person in this room, the room this morning, except for maybe one of the little, some of the little children, you know that poem, Footprints in the Sand. But it really makes the point, doesn't it? Not just a bunch of sentimentality. It really makes the point about the guy that, Wakes up from there, has to the dream, and he's walking along the beach. And there are two sets of, he turns around and looks back behind him, and there are two sets of footprints. And he realizes that God is with him. And, and all of a sudden, he looks and he sees something else. He sees that the darkest, most difficult times, it seemed like there was only one set of footprints. And he began to wonder. He began to think, you know, God, weren't you here? And, of course, it ends with God telling him, well, those were the times I carried you. It's a wonderful thing to be reminded of the fact that, you know, as difficult as it gets, as obscuring as life's difficulties and trials may sometimes be, God is always with us if we belong to him. God is always with us. He holds us in his hand. We'd stray off left to ourselves, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Gods going to make sure that happens. He is with me. You know, there was a scientific group that was searching for a, a rare flower. They were in the Alps. These group, this bot, these scientists, these botanists, they finally caught sight of this flower. They, they saw it down in, in, a, in a crevice, a, a chasm. It had steep cliffs on both sides. They realized the only way they were going to get that flower so that they could examine it was to crawl down in there. About that time, they noticed there was a young boy who was kind of on the outskirts of things, was watching them, and they realized he would be someone who might be a good candidate. He would fit. They said they would pay him if he would scale down this rope and get that flower for them and bring it back. He said, he, he came over, he looked down in there. He stood back up, he looked at them, and he said, give me just a few minutes. A few minutes passed, he came back. He came back with an old man He took the rope, got ready to descend. He said, I'll go down there after that flower. If you let this man hold the rope, he's my dad. That's our God. God has never left me, and that brings me great comfort. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Number two, this is also on your heavenly balance sheet. God has guided my footsteps after all. Look at the first part of verse 24. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. i tell you what, there are some beautiful promises in the Bible that speak about this. Psalm 32, 8, David is talking about it. He says this. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye." Psalm 48, let me read you the, I believe it's the last verse there. Uh, yes, verse 14, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will got, be our guide even unto death. Sometimes you don't see that, do you? Looks like run life is run amok. Looks like everything's out of control, but it is never out of God's control. And sometimes we just, all these things around us obscure that. Then you get out on the other side and you look back and God is pleased to show you just a glimpse that not only was he with you, he was guiding your footsteps and his way was right. Boy, that's a a thrilling and exciting moment when you see this. This is what got him excited. This is what got him back on track third thing that was on his heavenly balance sheet, and it is ours as well, God has promised us the glories of heaven, and nothing can alter that. I like that. Last part of verse 24, and afterward, receive me to glory. I like to think about it this way. You know, my son works for Braintree, which is a division of PayPal, and he works from home. That's how the job is set up. It's not COVID related. It's always been that way. But four times a year at least, he has to go to Chicago. So here's what happens. He goes out to Greenville-Spartanburg Airport and gets on an airplane, nonstop to Chicago, O'Hare. You ever lived in O'Hare? You know they call it O'Harey. It's a busy place. Anyway, that plane takes off. You may encounter some turbulence. Anybody ever been on a flight where you had some turbulence, hit some rough air? I don't like that. Do you? I mean, I like it real smooth. If it's real smooth, I'm bold as a lion. If it starts bouncing around there, I, you know, I don't like that too much. I have to tell you this real quick. I was on a flight one time. I don't remember exactly where we were going. Might have been to Chicago, but we got on board this flight, and you could see a A thunderstorm off in the distance huge thunderhead that just these things were going up and they came on and said now we're gonna have to detour around that so that's good I don't want to fly through that either so we're going along there and everything seems like the pilot has everything under control no problem at all and I'm telling you folks this is no exaggeration all of a sudden it was like the plane dropped like a rock And I mean, it was right at the point that people were about to scream. You could just hear the beginning stages of that in people's throats, and it stopped just that fast. The worst thing in the world about it was there was some little kid over there on the other side of the airplane, and he goes, Yahoo! (laughs) (laughs) What it's like to be young and innocent scared me to death, but that little kid was over there. Well, later the pilot came on the thing and said, folks, uh, we had a you know, too much air traffic, and the air traffic control got concerned that we were too close to another aircraft, and they ordered us to descend 1,000 feet immediately. I don't know if any of you have ever been involved with that kind of work before, but I, this I can tell you, because I've known air traffic controllers. If a pilot gets that message, they don't mess around. They don't worry about those slow, nice descents that keep everybody happy. It's like a rock. You get on board this airplane, and you may, in fact, encounter some turbulence. And that reminds me a lot of what life is like. You get on this airplane called salvation, and sometimes you have some days that it's turbulent. But I'm telling you what, folks, when that airplane lands, it lands at the destination And that destination is heaven's glory. And there is nothing that's going to stop that in all of this universe. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Hmm. Whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also glorified justified and glorified. It's all done in God. I'm going to tell you, we live in a linear life and God doesn't. God sees the whole thing done. God sees many sons brought to glory. Here, this is on your balance sheet too. God alone satisfies. Verse 25. You may think all those riches and other things and big houses and mansions, but they don't really satisfy. And those people that live in them in an honest moment will tell you that. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. It takes God to satisfy, because God has made us that way, and you can't beat. Sometimes I I think about it in computer language. You can't change the program. God has made us a certain way, and the best person to, to qualify this, one of the best quotations you can ever read along these lines, comes from Augustine. Augustine should know. He tried dissipation sensuality, he tried philosophy, he tried religion, he tried the art. he tried all those things somehow, running from his mother's prayers, hoping he could find peace and satisfaction in this world until that day in that garden that his eyes were directed by God to fall on that scripture in Romans 13, and he was born again and became a child of God. And then he articulated that whole journey this way. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until It finds its rest in thee. It takes God to satisfy. The last thing is, God gives me the strength I need. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart faileth. It's true. The best of us are weak. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have the confidence of knowing that God is never going to take me to a place that he is not with me and never going to ask of me something he will not equip me to face. I say after you get done with all these things, God is good. So what do we learn? And we have to stop. But what do we learn from Asaph's experience? He tells us this. It it closes with this application. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Basically, what is he saying? He's staying close, stay close to God. Be careful about your holy habits. Read your Bible. Walk with God. Pray. Stay faithful to church. That's how God, God's not dumb, you know. God didn't set up the church because he didn't have something better to do. This is a point of God's manifold wisdom. He knows we need each other. He knows we need iron sharpens iron. We hear the word of God. We're confronted with this because in and of ourselves, we tend to get all goofed up. So maintain your holy habits and never lose your faith. He says, trust in the Lord. Never let something shake your faith in God's goodness. I want to end with this. You may say it's a sentimental story. Perhaps it is. But... I go by this. By definition, don't we expect God to do the big things? Isn't that kind of how we think? But if God does something little, that really catches my attention. Because then I think, He really does care. He really is with me. I can't tell you how many times, I suppose this is a commentary on getting older, but I put something down. If it's my pen, it drives me nuts. I just don't like to get. I mean, I've had this pen. This is like a faithful dog. <laughs> I've had this pen for so long. If if I put the thing, I put it down, can't find it. Well, I've kind of learned whether it's, it's Sicilian it? and it's just a five dollar Parker pen or whatever it is. But I've learned something. Instead of getting all worked up, I just pray. Lord, I know it's silly, but I want that pen. I need that pen. Help me to find out where I put that pen. And folks, on most days, within 10 minutes, I've got the pen back. And that kind of thing happens. I kind of think, you know, if God cares about a pen. hmm. Anyway, this believer, this woman was a believer. And she liked to visit antique stores. Some of you may enjoy that. One day she was browsing in an antique store and she saw an old, some of you have seen these, an old Singer sewing machine, the kind that it's on a table. And you have that thing on the floor, the foot pedal you've got to work. And she just kind of casually, I don't know whether she was intending to pray, but she just kind of casually said to herself, God, I'd like to have something like that for my place. Well, She wasn't praying because she lost her job. She wasn't praying to ask for forgiveness. She wasn't praying for safety like she's taking a trip. None of those big things. She just said something about a little thing. She might have forgotten totally about it. But a couple of days later, she went out her front door on her way to work. And there's this pile of junk sitting there at the curb near her house. She walked over to it. She was stunned. In the rubbish stood an old singer sewing machine, the kind built in on the table with the foot pedal down on the ground. On it, there was a sign and it said, perfect condition, please take. It's days like that that I think to myself, you know, God is really good. God is really good. Think about this heavenly balance sheet. And may the Lord use this time with Psalm 73 today to help us understand that God is good. Life can be turbulent, but God is good and he's with us in all these things. God knows what he's doing. Let's pray together.